0: throughout Christian history, throughout the last 2,000 years of church history, there has not been an issue, a question uh, that has raised more questions than what happens to people when they die. What is heaven going to be like? The question gets asked a lot of different ways. You certainly asked this. You certainly wondered this. And it's a question that for 2,000 years, uh, Christians have read the scriptures, poured of the scriptures, and tried to, to sort of piece together what does it all look like? What is the great hope uh, of the Christian faith? And where is history going? And it's not just Christians that have wondered this question. Uh, it's our culture ponders this question. Uh, our, our culture, even in a, in a culture that uh, if you turn on the news, you see it's just progressively more and more uh, becoming secular, or less and less people are going to church, uh, it has not changed the fascination with heaven, has it? Uh, that you look at the New York Times bestsellers list, there's always books at the top about, uh, about heaven. Uh, films portray this, Hollywood portrays this all the time, don't they, uh, of what heaven is going to be like. It's always kind of goofy in the movies, isn't it? Um, It's always Morgan Freeman in a white building in a white suit, you know, it's kind of the images that we're given. And so one of the things we want to do together over the next few weeks, because um, even if you're not a Christian, we all ponder these kinds of questions uh, at the soul deep, you know, sort of level of of the greatest mysteries of life. Uh, What is heaven? What is the afterlife? Where is history going? And so one of the things we want to do together over the next few weeks is just look at the scriptures. Uh, begin to open up the Bible and begin to discover what does the Bible teach about what the afterlife is going to be? What is the great hope of the writers of the scriptures? And what would Jesus have believed about what was next and, and what they would have called the age to come? What was that going to be? What was that going to look like? And to be honest with you, for most of my faith, I've never been that interested in discussions uh, about heaven, because you certainly met Christians before, and I met Christians before, uh, that want to spend a majority of their time in Bible studies and discussions, kind of debating, you know, what is that going to be like, and coming up with timelines and flowcharts and reading into world events and. Uh, And and it all can kind of boil down to speculation, and and a lot of the reason I've never been that interested in it is because a majority of the 31,000 or so verses that we have in the Bible, uh, they don't invite us to locate our faith in some sort of uh, speculation about the end of of the world or uh, heaven or whatever it may be. Uh, A majority of the Bible invites us into this world Uh, A majority of the scriptures are inviting us, there's certainly passages about heaven, we're gonna get to those in a few moments, but a majority of the Bible invites us to be fully engaged and fully and present uh, in this life and in this world. Uh, And and so any sort of faith that begins uh, to be just about, uh, you know, this world's sort of meaningless and we're all just kind of waiting for for something that the action really starts there uh, is is not really what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches us to be fully engaged, fully present in this life and in this world. We've all certainly met Christians, haven't we, Uh, that are so heavenly minded they become of no earthly good, (laughs) Uh, do, do you know what I'm talking about? Just, uh, just consistently, constantly trying to figure out well, what does this mean and how does this, and, uh, and it wasn't until uh, a couple years ago I read a quote by C.S. Lewis that changed my perspective and, and beginning to think through what is the great Christian hope? What, what does it mean uh, that God is going to redeem or restore? What, what is the great hope uh, of our faith? C.S. Lewis said it this way. Uh, Here's the quote that he had that I just thought was so brilliant. Any C.S. Lewis quote's pretty brilliant, but he said this. If you read history, he says, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were precisely those who fought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one uh, that... Uh, And I don't think what he's saying is that we should, you know, spend all our time, you know, debating and discussing where uh, we just kind of check out of this life and this world and just talk about the next one but that a great vibrant hope in what God is doing in history and where he's carrying history uh, produces a vibrant faith. And that if we don't have a vibrant hope uh, at funerals, if we don't have a vibrant hope that is at the center of our faith about where history is going according to those scriptures, uh, that something about our faith in the here and now uh, is weakened. That a weak hope uh, produces in our life a weak kind of a faith in this world. And so over the next few weeks, we just wanna open up the Bible and begin to discover together, uh, what does the Bible say about the afterlife? If you have a Bible, turn with me to the book of Genesis, that's where we're gonna begin. Genesis chapter one, and we're going to start in verse one. And I want us to note, God has uh, decided essentially to write a book, and. Uh, I want us to notice, as we read through this story, uh, how consistently the Bible is written uh, through people inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. The scriptures were uh, written over about a 1,500-year period. Uh, in other words, it didn't just sort of drop out of the sky, but it was written by writers over a 1,500-year period, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, written, God-breathed is, is what the scriptures are. Uh, but it's amazing how over 1,500 years of the scriptures being, uh, being written, a people being inspired by God, how the story just holds together, how the the central hope holds together. It's written over 1,500 years, over a wide geographical terrain, but the central message of of hope uh, remains the same. Genesis chapter one, starting in verse one, in the beginning, God created the heavens And the earth. And so the idea here is that it wasn't uh, God coming down out of heaven, kind of leaving his house to create the earth. Uh, In the beginning, he creates the very first sentence, he's creating at the same time the heavens and the earth. And the Jewish writers, uh, the writers of the scriptures, would not have believed that heaven and earth were uh, polar opposites as we often think of them. In this scene, the, the heavens and, and the earth, they're, they're complementary. They're, they're like husband and wife. They go together. There's this beautiful relationship. And the writer of Genesis begins to describe what it looks like when heaven and earth are together, what this beautiful sort of marriage looks like, what it looks like when God's will is happening on earth as it is in heaven. What this uh, scene describes throughout the rest of the book is what it looks like when things are as God intends for them to be, when heaven and earth are uh, when they're together, when there's sort of this beautiful relationship between the two. It says this, if you skip ahead to verse 11, notice the kind of world that God makes. Notice what it looks like when heaven and earth are together. It says this, then God said, Let the land produce vegetation, seed bearing plants, and trees on the land that bear fruit with seeds in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. Verse 12, the land produced vegetation. Plants bearing seeds according to their kinds and trees bearing fruit with seeds in it according to their kinds as well. And God saw that it was good. Verse 22, skip ahead. Talking about the animals, the birds. God said this, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase, and notice the language, increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth, and so, what kind of a world does God make? What kind of a world is this? Uh, it's not a world that's static or fixed, is it? It's not a world where every tree is the exact height it's going to be, and every you know everything looks exactly. It's not as if God made a world and then uh, hairsprayed it and said, "Adam, and Eve, don't touch anything. It's exactly as I want it to be." He's making a world. The words here are increase, produce. Uh, the world, you could think of it this way, God creates a world that is loaded with potential. It's expanding, it's producing. The, the idea here is that uh, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, they were not bored, they were not sort of lounging in a hammock, listening to the waterfall trickle and uh, watching the birds go by. Just kind of, th- th- This is not the scene we get. We get the idea that adam they're taking care of this place that's expanding and producing and creating. They have to build uh, a place to live. They're raking leaves. There's work for them to do. Adam and Eve would get done with the day. The first people would get done with the day and there would be dirt under their fingernails. There would be sweat on their brow. There'd be this sense that this day was exhausting and it was exhilarating at the same time. Because this world is expanding, it's producing, it's going somewhere. Here's why this is important. Because whatever you perceive the Garden of Eden to be is how you'll begin to perceive heaven to be. That there's this link uh, between how we think about the Garden of Eden and how we begin to think. About heaven, And if the Garden of Eden seems like kind of this static, uh, just kind of lounging in hammocks, listening to waterfalls kind of a place, well, then heaven becomes a very boring kind of place for you. Uh, But if you begin to to recognize that Adam and Eve would have had this dynamic relationship with an expanding, uh, loaded with potential kind of a world, uh, well, this becomes a more interesting, compelling view of what heaven is going to be like. You go to Genesis chapter 2, Notice some of the scenes of what this is like. This is what it looks like. Heaven and earth uh, are together. It says this, verse 10. A river, uh, we'll start in verse 10. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there, it was separated into four headwaters. And so God makes a world, and in the beginning of it, uh, you could say it this way. There uh, is going to be a river. Uh, There's a river in the beginning. What does it look like? Well, one of the scenes that we get is there's a river. Uh, We'll get to that in about 20 more minutes. Just hang on to that. Uh, It says this uh, in Genesis chapter two, in the next part, the Lord God took the uh, uh, the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And so Adam and Eve, uh, in the beginning, they're down here with the river, there's this work to do in this creation that's loaded with potential. This is what it looks like when heaven meets earth. This is what it looks like when God's will is happening on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, there's this beautiful harmony. There's a beautiful relationship vertically between God and people, isn't there? There's a beautiful relationship between Adam and Eve. They're working together, side by side. There's not this tension and conflict. Uh, horizontally, uh, there's harmony between Adam and Eve. There's this beautiful relationship between uh, man, uh, woman, and, and the creation. There, there's dirt under their nails because they have work to do. There's stuff that, there's this beautiful relationship uh, that's going on. This is what it looks like. Uh, when heaven and earth are just zzz, just, up, just firing on all cylinders as God intends for it to be. Uh, if you've been hanging around church for a while, you know the story goes south very quick. The very next scene, Genesis chapter 3, you turn over a page, uh, an enemy enters into the story. Uh, Satan slides into the scene and literally what happens is, is hell comes to earth. And you could think of it this way, uh, heaven and earth were in this beautiful marriage And then earth has a love affair with hell. Uh, An affair that I would argue is still going on (laughs) to this day. But there's this, this begins to disrupt the harmony. It begins to rip apart what God designed, created. All of a sudden, things are not happening on earth as they are in heaven. All of a sudden, death enters into the scene. I would argue any area of your life where you've been impacted by death or you've been impacted by pain, suffering, any area of your life where you've had the sense, this is not how it's supposed to be. Perhaps it's been through a self-inflicted wound or an addiction or something that just, maybe you're not even a Christian, but you've, Used the words before, uh, man, this is like hell on earth. Exactly. Exactly. Things here are not as God intended and designed them to be. Uh, Something went wrong in the story. We all have this lingering sense. And for us in our world, oftentimes we read the account of Genesis 1 and 2 as some sort of Willy Wonka kind of a world. Uh, with a chocolate factory, and it kind of stapled onto the front of the Bible, and then we just kind of need to move on to the real stuff in the New Testament. But the writers of the scriptures, again and again, they would not have seen Genesis 1 and 2 as some kind of uh, mythical fantasy land, you know, walk through the wardrobe kind of a place. Uh, The writers of Genesis 1 and 2 would have had this hope, uh, or the writers of the scriptures had this hope that God was going to redeem and restore what he'd created in the beginning, that, that essentially, uh, their relationship with the, this story uh, was a lot like the state of Texas's relationship with Blue Bell ice cream right now. Uh, how long, God? <laughs> when will that day of redemption come, where we will open the freezers of the grocery store and that sweet smell? Well, th- this was the hope. One day, God was going to restore. Uh, Everything to look the way that it was. They essentially, they were not waiting on an evacuation. They were waiting on a restoration. It says this in Isaiah. uh, This would have been many, many years later that Isaiah uh, writes these words to the people of God. This is before Jesus enters the world. But Isaiah is talking about this day, this redemption, uh, when the Garden of Eden, and notice the scene is very similar to Genesis 1 and 2. He says this, Isaiah 65, verse 17. He says, see, this is the hope. This is the hope the people of God would have had. See, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. Uh, so if you've had maybe a boyfriend, maybe uh, something in your past, maybe it was a car wreck that uh, 20 years ago, but you still think about it. You just you you have anxiety, you have fear over because things in your life at a particular time, a relationship went wrong, whatever it is. Uh, th- this idea of what it's going to look like when God redeems things, when God restores things, uh, when there's this new heaven and this new earth, uh, you won't remember those things. Uh, there's not going to be the effect of pain, death, sin. And he's describing a world that's very real. And he says this in verse 19, we're just kind of taking snapshots here of the story, but he says this, I will rejoice over Jerusalem. Uh, You can insert your city there. You can insert Rockwall into this. You can insert insert Forney into this. You can insert Austin, whatever city. It would Do no injustice to the passage. The idea here is that when this happens, it's going to be real. Uh, It's gonna be rock wall without hospitals and funeral homes. It's going to be uh, this real place. And take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Uh, There's not going to be any sadness on this day. Verse 21, they will build houses. So what does it look like when God restores, when God redeems? According to Isaiah, they will build houses. And dwell in them, dirt under their fingernails. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit, dirt under their fingernails. Verse 22, no longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. Uh, Have you ever done work before and then somebody else just took the credit for it? And then you thought, like, I can't believe, well, when God, uh, when heaven meets earth, when God restores, redeems, uh, this scene of of recreation, the Garden of Eden remade uh, in this real sort of scene that Isaiah's painting, uh, that's not gonna happen. You will get the reward of the work that you've done. Verse 25, he gives this scene, the wolf and the lamb will feed together and the lion will eat straw. Like the ox and dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain says the Lord. And notice the scene here, it's real, it's tangible. It's a physical, uh, tactile world. Uh, they're building houses, they're working with the ground. This is the Garden of Eden, the world that, uh, that the heaven that Isaiah imagines is the Garden of Eden, essentially. Harmony between God and man, God dwelling with people, uh, this beautiful relationship between people. It's a real world. It's not uh, Morgan Freeman in a white building in a white suit. It's not something less real. It's not some sort of floaty, mythical kind of, kind of thing uh, where you can't talk because you're gonna disrupt the harpist who's playing in the background. It's, it's a real place. It's essentially this world, but without death in it at all. Uh, because it's, it's more real than this world because everything in this world, isn't it true, uh, has been affected by death. Everything in this world has death all over it. That no matter how powerful you become, no matter how much money you you attain, uh, we all live with a sense that life is fragile, that anything you could ever purchase, anybody you could ever love, it all ends up in the town dump or the town graveyard eventually. And heaven is the kind of place where death has not impacted anything. Where things are exactly as God imagined them to be, or wanted or desired or created them to be. It's a place. Uh, this is what it looks like when heaven meets Earth. This is what it looks like, according. It's not less real, it's actually more real. And this was the, was the central hope in the Old Testament. This is the central hope uh, that the prophets, Isaiah, uh, would imagine and envision for the people. Uh, you turn over to the New Testament. Notice the words of Jesus. Notice the words of Jesus in Matthew 19, 28. Jesus said to them, he's getting questions, what is this going to be like? What is this uh, new kind of heaven and earth? It says, truly I tell you, Jesus says, at the renewal of all things. When the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So this day, whatever, uh, whenever it looks, which we don't know, uh, that God restores, redeems, Jesus says there's gonna be judgment, but he also describes it as there's a renewal of all things. The Garden of Eden, what God, it's, it's going to be this renewal, restoration of all things. Growing up as a kid, my dad uh, had a, a contracting construction company in our town. And uh, there was a particular area of uh, of town where there was these old houses. Uh, This is in North Atlanta in a a town called Norcross. And there was this uh, area of town It was called Old Historic Norcross, where these old houses, some of them 100 years old, 120 years old, uh, existed. And my dad would uh, take me sometimes to these jobs when I was a kid, where uh, you go into these houses and the roof was caving in and the front porch was caving in. And uh, they would ask my dad, well, you know, we've got to fix this. What do we do? And my dad, uh, as a construction worker, as a renovator, he would never walk in and go, man, we're going to take some dynamite and just blow it up. No, he, he would say, we have to restore it. And this is the vision that's given of what God is going to do when heaven meets earth on that day when Jesus returns. He's going to come, not with dynamite to blow it all up, uh, but to restore, to recreate, to make a world where death does not affect anything as it was in the beginning. Notice Peter, the disciples in the early church, the very beginning of the early church. This is the great hope. Acts chapter three, turn over a few pages. Acts chapter three, verse 21. This is Peter uh, at Pentecost. Says this, heaven must receive him until the time for God, until the time comes for God to do what? To restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets, Isaiah And the others. And so heaven is not, uh, for Isaiah, for Peter, for Jesus, it's not the demise of the created world, Uh, it's the renewal of it. Heaven is not a less real kind of a place where it's just kind of these floaty spirit things, it's a more real kind of a place. It's this world, but it, where death, it's, it's walking around these streets and having conversations with people, but in a world where death is not lingering or hovering over conversations and in, in things. It, it's this world, but it's more real than this world because death isn't anywhere to be found. Uh, this is the great hope of the people of God in the scriptures. Notice uh, Paul in the early church. uh, Paul's getting a lot of questions because Paul and uh, a series of others are traveling the world and saying essentially, uh, Jesus is risen from the dead. Uh, Death does not have any power. Death does not have the last word. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, uh, death uh, has lost its sting. Death has no victory. Hell has no victory. Uh, And then some of the early Christians, uh, they start going to funerals for people that are Christians, and this is very troubling. And they begin to wonder, like, if if Christ's resurrection has power, then why are people dying? We've had 2,000 years as the church to get used to this, but this was uh, shocking to some of the early Christians. And so Paul writes in uh, a letter to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and notice what he says to 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 the church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Skip ahead to verse 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, uh, so Paul essentially says, uh, for, for those of us that uh, as we talk about this, we all think about somebody, and we go, well, uh, that person I love, my mom, my dad, my sister, my son, my da- uh, that, that I lost, uh, like, where, like what's the hope? And Paul says the resurrection of Jesus changes everything, that essentially for Paul, the re- there was the resurrection of Jesus, don't want to make that upside down, uh, there was the resurrection of Jesus and that there's going to be, he links it to another kind of resurrection where essentially, according to Paul, one day there's going to be the resurrection of the dead, that because this happened, the great hope of the early church and the Christians was that this was going to happen, another resurrection. And it's real, it's tangible, that in the same way Jesus walked out of a tomb, that whatever that day looks like when heaven meets earth, when God redeems all things, uh, that there's going to be in the same way a resurrection again. Tangible, tactile, that you'd be walking through a funeral home that day and go, oh my goodness. What is going on here? This real, tactile, real, not sort of a floaty spirit thing, but re- in the same way that this, uh, Jesus essentially was saying, I'm going first, but it's going to happen again. Paul's essentially saying, you thought that was the last resurrection? No, 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 it, that was the first fruits, that was the beginning of what the great hope of the Christian faith is, that one day bodily resurrection will happen. You could say it this way, we live our lives now between the resurrections that one day in the afterlife, whatever that looks like, which I think produces all kinds of questions. Well, what does that that mean? Notice what Jesus says, I had a Bible somewhere. Oh, there it is. Uh, I gotta read the whole book today, so I gotta, let's see here. Notice what Jesus says in John chapter 14, talking about this hope. Like, well, where do people go when they die? What is this, like, what are they doing in the meantime? (laughs) And Jesus says this, my father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you with me that you also may be where I am. So Jesus says, uh, which I think produces all kinds of questions, but for Jesus, and, and the word here that's used for room, my father's house has many rooms, uh, it's, it's a temporary kind of dwelling place. It's a hotel, essentially. That where, if, you, if you're like me, you go, well, where do people go? Like if this hasn't happened yet, and somebody dies before this happens, then where do they go? What, what does that look like? Are they with Jesus, as we talk about at funerals? Well, absolutely but they're still waiting essentially, just like you and me for a day for God to restore and resurrect the people of God and restore and redeem everything. They're still, they're between the resurrections. And they're with Jesus, that new body, they're healed. They don't have cancer anymore, they're not sick. But there's still this sort of expectation, apparently, even in heaven, that 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 sort of scene that we get, it's it's a temporary dwelling place and there's going to be a time. They're still waiting like you and me for this resurrection. This is the great hope of the Christian faith. If that's clear as mud for you, uh, then you can think of it this way. Uh, There's a baseball player for the Texas Rangers currently. His name, uh, I'm gonna put his picture on the screen. Uh, does anybody know this guy's name? Anybody at all? Has anybody ever heard of the Texas Rangers? (laughs) Did you know there's a baseball team here in the state of Texas? Uh, This is Joey Gallo. Joey Gallo, he's not dead, don't worry. Joey Gallo is 21 years old and he is the phenom of the Rangers organization right now. Uh, the the hope of the Rangers is that this 21-year-old kid, uh, he spent most of his season in uh, AAA in Round Rock. Uh, At the beginning of the season, he was uh, in the big leagues, and then he went back to Round Rock, and now when their season ended, he came back up a couple weeks ago. But he's 21 years old, and the great hope of the Rangers is that Joey Gallo is, is going to return and uh, restore, he's gonna resurrect the Rangers and return them to greatness, essentially. Uh, that the Round Rock will be rolled away. Uh, <laughs> and that he will uh, return, res- there's this sense of expectation with Rangers fans that's there, that something has not happened yet. There's this hope, this promise that is in Joey Gallo. This is sort of the scene that we're given, that we're between these resurrections, that the body is waiting for this great day, for this great moment. That all of creation, according to Paul, is groaning, eagerly waiting for this. Uh, And it's real, tactile. It's a physical embrace with a loved one. Uh, it's, it's, It's a real thing. And so this is uh, what happens to bodies according to the scriptures when all things are redeemed and restored, when the Garden of Eden gets remade in this world. But notice what Jesus, or, or what the scriptures say happens to all of creation. Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. And this is John writing a snapshot or a picture of what he sees when he's talking about the great hope of the Christian faith. He said, then I saw, and this is Straight out of Isaiah, essentially. A new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. So heaven and earth, uh, they get married again. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Verse four, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Uh, This is what it looks like. (laughs) This is the scene, this is the hope. Uh, that there comes a day God restores, God uh, builds here in this world, a a new kind of a place, a new kind of a world, as the Garden of Eden recreated, this is the central hope. Notice Revelation 22, verse one. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And so the Bible, uh, it starts with a river, and what's the scene that we're given in the very last page? We're given as another river. Uh, you could think of it this way. We live our lives between the rivers. And we live our lives between the resurrections, but we live between the rivers. And that means if you go to a funeral, you, you uh, are impacted by death, divorce, foreclosure, whatever it may be, there's just that, man, that's life between the rivers. But one day, God is going to restore, redeem. This is the central hope. That essentially, uh, God is going to do for all of creation what he did for Jesus at Easter. Restore, redeem. There's going to be this beautiful, not just with bodies, but with all of creation, remade. You go, well, what does that mean? Like, how do you, What do you do with that? How do you begin to live And what does this mean for for the people of God like at work tomorrow? What, What do you do with that? Well, you can think of it this way. When you became a Christian, or if you decide to become a Christian, essentially you became this little piece of territory in this world where heaven invaded earth. The way God wants things to be invaded you. You became this place where death does not have power over you. You became this little pocket in this world that is is bent towards death and destruction. You became this little pocket of hope. You became this little pocket of heaven. That essentially you and I, we are not citizens of earth waiting one day to go up to heaven. We are citizens of heaven now. In this world, we are citizens of heaven who happen to be dwelling and living on earth, waiting for the redemption and the redeeming of all things which means we go throughout this world as citizens of heaven in this world, in the here and now, colonizing this earth with heaven, doing the best that we can to roll up our sleeves in this world, in the here and now, to bring heaven into this world, that anywhere there's death, anything that's been impacted by hell, anything that's been impacted by destruction, our job in the here and now, have you ever wondered why Christians are supposed to be good? is to bring, what did Jesus teach his disciples to pray? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Our job, man, is to colonize this place. Begin, the the, the project got started in the resurrection of Jesus and our job is to bring heaven to earth now. Clean drinking water for people that don't have it, our neighbor who doesn't know Jesus, anywhere that death, destruction has invaded, to roll up our sleeves, begin the project in the here and the now. This means uh, that if, uh, if you're not a Christian, maybe the, the question to ask is, is this a compelling hope for you? Is this a compelling vision? Is this true for you? Like is you, you hear that, you go, man, that's, that's more compelling than six feet under eating dirt forever. Uh, maybe you could say it this way. Christians have asked it this way for, for many, many years. If you were to die tonight, are you going to go to heaven? Like, are, are you going to participate in this? But the question, if you're a Christian, if you're already a disciple of Jesus, the question is, uh, according to Jesus, if you're to wake up tomorrow, are you going to bring heaven here? Are, Are you going to be bringing the kingdom, your kingdom come, your will be done in this world? This is the great hope of the future which gives us great hope for how to live in the present. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the resurrection God, we thank you for the river. We thank you that it's not just something that happened in history, but you tell us it's something that's gonna happen in the future. Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. And this is our hope as the people of God. We look forward, we mourn at funerals differently. We act differently in our offices. We live in this world differently because we have this great hope of what you will do. We thank you for that, God. We thank you that heaven has already started to invade earth. And the people of God, we have reason to celebrate and we have a great reason to hope. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.